At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 13th, 2021, the Million Dollar Jab Edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School is, as ever, from New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. Hello, John. And John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes and Face the Nation and probably lots of other things. Every CBS News enterprise you can think of joins from his home. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. Today on the GabFest, we're going to talk about whether unemployment benefits are discouraging Americans from looking for work and whether we should be worried about the latest jobless numbers then. We will talk about vaccination. Why are vaccination rates slowing? Should we be giving vaccines to India? Should we be, in fact, vaccinating all the teenagers who are now eligible for vaccines? Should we be giving million-dollar lottery prizes to people who get vaccines? Yes, we should. Then we will be joined by internet security guru Alex Stamos to discuss the colonial pipeline hack and its implications. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And I know we don't cover celebrity news much on the GapFest, but I want to just flag one story. I, for one, although you guys maybe were not surprised, that the mediator in the Kardashian West divorce is going to be none other than former Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. <laughs> Breyer worked in family law early in his career, and apparently he spent some of 2020 when he was still on the Supreme Court secretly training as a mediator. So that's pretty cool. Weston Kardashian according to reports I read in People Magazine, wanted a mediator who knew nothing about either of them, which made Breyer an ideal candidate. That's probably true. That part, that last part. Because none of the rest is true because Breyer still is a Supreme Court justice, unaccountably. So one of the many American women who have withdrawn from the workforce recently is Liz Cheney, who was bounced yesterday as House Conference Chair. She is one of just hundreds of thousands, millions of women who have left the workforce. And the departure Wait, she's of she's still in Congress, David. I know. It was like a line. It was, it was come a on, line. Give him the- Sorry. <laughs> she lost one of her jobs, Emily. Okay. I feel like the fantasy part of the gap fest was continuing too long for my extremely literal brain. I couldn't handle it. Go up. Fair continue. enough. Continue. But I did appreciate his effort to try to get thank that you, John. piece of I've, news into the you. conversation. Because it is striking that it happened and we're not really going to talk about it, but it's um Exactly. Still, it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you, John. In any case, April job numbers showed much lower employment growth than expected. The economy added a seasonally adjusted 266,000 jobs, which is much less than the million expected. It's actually not true that we added 266,000 jobs. It's that we added 266,000 jobs plus the million or so that we already always add more in the spring. Um, And so we we would have added even more had we hit the numbers that a lot of economists expected. Um, one of the things that was striking, of course, was that there was also a huge exodus of women from the workforce. So men, men in general did pretty well in the job market and the job market expanded significantly, but a lot of women left. So it looks like there are a wide variety of factors at play in what's going on. Women are opting or compelled into family care because a variety of reasons, but in part because a lot of schools still are not fully open. Also, it appears that they're are jobs that were appealing to people pre-pandemic that are no longer appealing because working conditions may be a lot worse or more more onerous than they were. But Republicans have fixated on one reason, John, and that is unemployment insurance, that the extra unemployment insurance is disincentivizing people from being in the job market. And that's what the problem is. And that's why the economy or the jobs didn't grow as much as people expected. Should, should we take that seriously? There, you know, I talked to, on Face the Nation, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, 
and Neil Kashkari. And he said there is some evidence of this, but some evidence of what there's uh, some evidence that people are not looking for work as robustly as they would if they weren't getting unemployment benefits, but that that is just a part of the picture, that the other bigger parts of the picture are two things. One, what you were talking about, which is that women on whose shoulders a disproportionate amount of the COVID-related care falls are still stuck with that, everything from taking care of older parents to taking care of kids. Second, there's a lot of hesitancy and fear out there. The difference between the amount of money people have in their wallets and the amount of money they're willing to spend, there's a gap. They have a lot more in their savings accounts and wallets than they're spending. And that suggests some continued fear about going out into the world. We also saw that the last quarter was one of the highest, I think on record, for paying down credit card debt. More proof that people are saving instead of going out there and spending. And that has to do with fear of COVID, not this question about unemployment. So it's a much more complex picture than people are making it seem. But as you suggest, the reason it has political power is that it allows Republicans to basically say this stuff that you've been pushing, you Democrats, and the further stuff you're pushing as a remedy to COVID uh, is all misapplied. Right. And there are a few Republican governors who are saying they're going to discontinue the higher levels of federal unemployment insurance earlier than the legislation calls for because they say, you know, we need all these people back at work to have our economy at full speed again without any acknowledgement of the pressures you were just talking about. And also the fact that when I was reading about this, I was struck that the um, the employers who seem to be having trouble attracting people back are in hospitality and leisure. And these are really low-paying jobs. Like, people are not willing to do jobs that they don't think they're getting paid enough money for. And the unemployment insurance benefit may be part of that calculation, especially for a family, right? If you your kids aren't fully back in school, you're still coping with various things, you're not going to go and take that poorly paying job. Well, maybe employers should be paying workers better to get them back. Like that seems to me like a perfectly acceptable, even good bargain, a way of getting low wage workers more money in the equation. And these Republican governors who are taking away the unemployment insurance early seemed completely disinterested in that. Well, so just to get in the specifics, there's a $300 a week extra federal unemployment benefit that comes out of the American ARP, the American Recovery Plan, right? Yes. Uh, and that goes until, I think, September. Is that right? Yes. And, yes. and so rep- various Republican governors, the governor of Arkansas, for example, are proposing to end that early. But it doesn't seem to have you know, changed any the minds of any Republican governors about raising the minimum wage in their states. That it doesn't, There doesn't seem to be a groundswell of that happening because it's Or even just to allow the labor shortage to play, if it's even that, in these particular sectors, to play out a little longer so that wages rise naturally because employers are trying to attract back employees, right? Like, you don't even have to raise the minimum wage. You just let the market with these extra factors operate. The labor supply expanded in April. So it increased by 430,000 jobs. So if you believed that it was these lazy, you know, unemployment people not looking for job, you would ex- jobs, you would expect labor force participation to, to fall or stay flat. Um, now, you could argue that 430,000 in the, in the expansion of the labor supply should have been larger because people were talking about a million uh, jobs. So you can maybe make that case. But the labor supply did grow, which is to say that there were people out there looking for, for jobs, um, which again, you, you wouldn't expect if this narrative were as virulent as uh, it's being talked about the uh, and and a lot of the jobs that people are having a hard time filling are jobs that are less attractive than they were a year ago or pre-pandemic in the sense that they come with you know the, the way you have to work is perhaps masked in a kind of place that is that you may not feel is fully safe uh, that. You, or just uncomfortable, uncomfortable right? wearing a mask all day exactly. in like a closed, congested space. Yeah, yeah. and that in, in particularly in, in food service, it's not clear that, for example, the tip income is going to come back and be as high as it was because the customers aren't necessarily back yet. And so there are all sorts of reasons why someone might not take a job at this moment when they might take it three months from now when the working conditions were better or when it was clear that the customer base was there to, to sustain it. 
Emily, I want to talk about this question of women leaving because it is it's just dire, right? Yeah. I mean, if you think that it's really important to have women in the workforce, to have women have choices to work that are real choices, like supported by good wages and good options, this looks like real backsliding by the United States. And it's completely tied to the way we've handled school closures and care that families have needed during this period. And the women, like you said in the beginning, are the one uh, part of the population where their job stats have just not recovered. And that just seems totally... Well, the one part. They are the majority. Of the they po- are I mean, the majority like, of the yeah, population. Like to put it that way, it'd be like, it's like saying, oh, like, you know, you know, people with, uh, you know, people who drive Corvettes are the one part that haven't recovered. It's like, this is half the population. Women with children are the population in the employment sector who haven't come back, right? So it's like, uh, it is rather particular. It's also true that I meant women as opposed to men or as opposed to women who don't have kids or who are, you know, either younger or older. And those pressures just, I, I talk to people about them. I feel like Every day, practically, I hear a story that helps explain in some different part of the economy why women continue to make this choice. And it's going to depend on how we come back. And the rate of vaccination is part of that. But so are just the... um, plans for school in the fall. And, you know, Randy Weingarten, who's the head of one of the key teachers unions in the country, came out in favor of five-day-a-week reopening in the fall, which I think is important. But she also talked about social distancing and trying to use outdoor classrooms and something very complicated, not just like regular school in the fall, even though something like 90% of teachers have been vaccinated or have had the chance, and we now have 12 to 15-year-olds eligible for the vaccine. And and reading about all these hoops that she was asking schools to jump through in the fall, I just thought, oh, my God, like, how is this really going to work? I think actually in April, I believe that the labor force participation rate fell for women, which is to say that not only have they borne the brunt of the pandemic in a way that that's different than men, but I think this number in April showed that there was actually even um, – that that it was it was not just that they didn't grow as much as as people had hoped. It's actually the participation rate fell. We should also one little caveat is that April might be an aberration. We've certainly seen that before, where you've had single month hiccups that then you know the boom continued on. But the larger fear, of course, is that it's it was a slow ten year recovery from the the great um, recession and. Uh, Nobody wants that again. You know, the, the the hope is that this recovery is much, much faster because it doesn't have anything to do with the actual underlying issues in the economy. But what we're talking about with women is actual underlying issues in the economy. Um, Child care, elder care, the t- kinds of jobs that are available um, and the kinds of industries that have been particularly hard hit by COVID are all things that disproportionately affect women. Yeah, and, and th- there was also this very uh, alarming to certain inflation hawks number around inflation, that inflation grew 4.2% in the 12 months preceding April or 12 months through April, uh, which was a very high number relative to to recent history. Uh, but it's so, this has been such an anomalous year that you have to, you have to sort of say, it's totally concerning that the labor force numbers were much weaker than people expected. It's totally concerning if you're an inflation hawk that inflation was higher than people thought it was going to be. But it doesn't seem to warrant just yet a form of panic and complete redo of economic policy. Like, let's wait a little bit. A lot of the numbers over the last 12 months are really looking, you know, you had this period from last March, April through, you know, through the middle of the summer, where which was just crazy. And and so it's going to distort the the 12-month numbers until the end of this summer. So so making vast sweeping judgments about things based on that seems overstated and overheated. Yeah, and particularly on prices because the prices are in some sectors are, were depressed during the COVID period and so you would expect a spike. Now the argument is well the spike has been higher than people thought, but 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 I what you said David is really interesting because of course all of the projections for the reason the administration is pushing various policies uh, on jobs and families is based on an analysis and assessment of the economy. And so if we agree that everything is up for grabs and the measurement even of, of our current situation is thrown off by the 
weirdness of it and the singularity of it, then it makes it hard for the administration to make claims because they're operating with the same in the same uncertainty right. as we all are. Um, one thing I would say that is that contradicts something I said earlier about the um, nature of what we're in, this issue of the supply chain, the idea that manufacturers dipped in employment in the last month and have been seeing issues because they can't basically get the materials to make the stuff that they want to make. And this has been particularly written about a lot with respect to semiconductors um, affecting everything from cars to washing machines. Those supply chain issues, the CEO of Intel said they're not going to be straightened out for a couple of years. Um, Apple is saying they're going to be a three or four billion dollars off in the next quarter because of uh, basically not being able to get the materials that they need. And that will take some time to kind of work its way through. That is something that's a kind of long term economic result of the pandemic which is harder to fix than, say, getting everybody out of their houses and spending again. Yeah, that's a good point. I just wanted to say one last thing about childcare, which is that I think the pandemic has actually been very useful for making the case that childcare is part of infrastructure yep. and that yeah. it's crucial to getting women in particular, given their disproportionate um, share of this work, back to into the labor force. So that like particular point has been made loudly and clearly by the pandemic in a way that I think is useful to the plans of the Biden administration. Yeah, I keep going back to Juliet Kayyem when she guested on the GabFest way back early in pandemic. And she said, you know, at Homeland Security, they had made plans for all these pieces of critical infrastructure, 18 different kinds of critical infrastructure, if I remember the number correctly. But you know what they left out? Schools. Like they left out schools and kids. Like nobody thought, oh yeah, that's critical infrastructure. Because if people cannot rely on their children being somewhere safely, then they cannot do all the other things they need to do. Yep. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. You get to also get ad-free versions of Slate podcasts, and you can support the excellent journalism that Slate is doing. You only have to pay $1 for your first month of membership, and you can sign up by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. We love doing our bonus segments on the GabFest, and we're excited about the one we have today, which is a Dickerson special, it's, although it's not John's idea, but he saw it out in the world and decided it belonged to us, which is, what's the event that most changed our path in life that was not that was not marriage effectively. So we will talk about that. If you want to hear that segment, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I am really happy the 12 to 15 year olds can now get the Pfizer vaccine. I have a I have a 12 to 15 year old who I am looking forward to getting vaccinated shortly. Uh, the other pandemic vaccine news of the week is mixed. We have pandemic raging in India. Vaccine rates are pretty low there. We have vaccine uptake in the U.S. slowing dramatically. 
even though fewer than half of Americans have received a first dose. Um, and then we have what I my favorite bit of news of the week, which is Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio announcing they're going to give away five one million dollar prizes every week to people who get vaccinated. And I love this idea. I absolutely love this. I hope we talk about this the whole time, but we probably won't. Emily, why are vaccination rates going down so quickly? And and can anything be done about this besides giving one million dollar prizes to people who get vaccinated? Yeah, I also liked that. So I think there, I feel like there are two stories about the vaccine right now. One is the story in the United States. And if you, at least if you're me and you live in the United States, you are rooting really hard for people to get vaccinated faster. And the news about the 12 to 15 year olds is entirely welcome. And I think the answer to why rates are slowing is that the low-hanging fruit, the people who are willing to drive, to spend a lot of time online, to inconvenience themselves fairly significantly, those people have gotten their shots. And now we're to some segment of the population that is resistant to getting vaccinated. And then another like hefty share of people, like maybe 30 million people who just kind of haven't gotten around to it yet because it's kind of a pain and they've heard that they might get sick for a day or two. And that, even though it's a small a side effect, it seems to them more likely than getting COVID. And I've talked to a number of those people, and I think they're totally gettable. And that's why I like Mike DeWine's lottery. I like the free beer giveaways I read about in New Hampshire. I Like someone was giving away burgers. I think like making this a part of the summer and making it super accessible to people, especially the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, where you can just get one dose and you're done. I think that's all great in the United States. And I actually feel optimistic that we're going to get a lot of those people over the summer. Then there is the story about the world and the way in which rich countries, very much including the United States, are essentially hoarding the vaccine. And when I go back to the segment we did months ago with Ezekiel Emanuel, my memory was that like we were not supposed to be vaccinating American teenagers before we vaccinated older people in countries poor countries, developing countries, especially when there's a terrible outbreak in India. And so I Can actually I interrupt feel... You for one? Emily, we weren't supposed to be vaccinating us. Yes, The argument us. that Emmanuel was making was that even people like us, even healthy adults, shouldn't get vaccinated that early. Totally. We were supposed to be vaccinating at-risk populations in wealthy countries and then as fast as possible sending vaccine to at-risk people abroad. And we are not doing that at all. And I find that it makes me feel like hugely guilty and concerned. Although the funny thing is at that time, India was doing so well. It's, I'm not certain that um, doing so well in mitigating the spread of the virus that I'm not, not so certain that India would have been the first place we would have sent those vaccinations that we weren't getting. Which is not to, to not to undermine your point, but it's just sure it it should be out dependent on where hotspots are. But now that we see this yeah. hotspot in India, we should be by any kind of global equity standards responding to it. And well, I mean, I think that the um, Biden administration support for waiving patent protections is like a perfectly good step, but it's not a step that is getting millions and millions of doses to India right this right. minute. And nobody seems to feel like that is a thing they are responsible for doing. Right. I mean, it's, it, I found the patent protection. Thing so disingenuous in the sense that making the stupid vaccines, making the magnificent vaccines, I was using stupid <laughs> just in a kind of rhetorical way there, is unbelievably complicated and difficult. It can't just be done. You can't just like be like, oh, I've got a, I've got a lab. I can make the vaccines. It's, it's very complicated, especially. Right. So you need technology. The Pfizer and Moderna also. ones. Yeah. Although the prime minister of India did call the president and ask him to do this. So while everything you say is true in the face of carnage and what's happening in India to deny a request, it just seems to me to be politically impossible. But also one sure. thing I would add is it's not just from an equity standpoint, it's from a viruses can jump over boundaries really fast and come get you standpoint. And the variant, the whole idea that, you know, we could end up with a variant that breaks through the vaccine is much more likely if you have hundreds of thousands of cases mutating. And it, like the notion that it matters more to prevent a smaller number of cases in the United States than all these hundreds of thousands abroad, that just doesn't make any sense. Are you uh, guys as frustrated as I am about this the discussion around masking, outdoor masking, behavior outdoors, 
Yes. Your colleague. More frustrated, perhaps. Your colleague, yeah, Emily, David Leinhart, wrote this really quite brilliant piece in the New York Times about how misleading the CDC guidance on, on outdoor behavior was. Oh, Emily, maybe do you want to talk about that? Sure. I mean, what David did was the CDC is... Uh, issued this ultra-cautious statement that fewer than 10% of cases of transmission were outdoors. In fact, it might be something more like 0.01%. And so David was taking apart how they reached that statistic and saying that it was misleading and then pointing out that we're at this juncture, and I feel this like so strongly just for whatever reason, that the CDC and the official guidance feels too cautious in a way that is not does not seem evidence-based and is itself damaging in terms particularly of mental health. So for me, what was really um, very frustrating is the CDC's recommendations for camp, the idea that kids are supposed to be wearing a mask all the time outside, even if they're eating and swimming. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's going to ruin the summer for all these kids who like, what we should be doing this summer is making camp available to everybody and trying to get kids outside and running around. Even adults. Yeah, seriously. But especially kids, like their social and emotional development, their mental health seems more important to me than like anything right now. And instead, we're, you know, encumbering camps and kids with these unnecessary restrictions that, I mean, I assume the CDC is going to end up lifting them, but the CDC director was so defensive in the face of totally legit questions from Senator Susan Collins this week. And I, you know, it's people on liberals accuse conservatives of being anti-science in the COVID debate. And, and they have been, and there are ways in which refusing to wear a mask is much more like obviously acutely dangerous than being overly cautious, but overcaution has its cost. And we are starting to really cross a threshold. And so I was really happy to see David's piece because I feel like there is starting to be more pushback now from the media about some of these onerous ideas. But it still is sort of, I think, really handicapping us. Since I am now in the business, fortunately, of interviewing um, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb every week, Mm. I have lots of contact with somebody who has the most forward-leaning feelings on this. I mean, his his, last week he was saying basically they should lift the uh, mandates for indoor masking for places like San Francisco, where you have 70 to 80 percent of the population has been vaccinated. And his point was, one we've talked a lot about on this show, is that there's there's a mix of what you know by science, and then there's a mix of what you have to um, put out there for the purposes of public health. And public health has some fuzziness to it, which is you may not know to an absolute certainty that it's okay to engage in certain kinds of behavior, but that if you are as if you are just uh, your rules are so stringent. A, people will stop listening to you, and B, in the winter, when cases go back up again and states and the CDC and others might have to give out guidance to rein in our activities, nobody's going to listen if you've blown all your credibility. And the final thing I would say is on the going on, the when the numbers are rising, when you know the future numbers are going to be higher than what you see today, which was the case for so much of this pandemic, being extra cautious was wise because you knew the future was going to be worse than today. But now the opposite is the case. We know the numbers are going to be much lower in the future than they are now because of vaccinations. And so that's his argument for leaning in is that you should change your mindset. Instead of being hyper cautious, you should be hyper aggressive because you know the trend where the trends are going and that those trends have science behind them. That is very persuasive. And I, I am so perplexed and frustrated by this. I'm perplexed and frustrated, particularly by the people who say, oh, there's no cost to having these mandates or to encouraging masking behavior outdoors, indoors, wherever, but particularly outdoors at this point. And I mean, there's this sort of anti-scientific element to it, which is the same people who are talking about the science are now saying, oh, no, you have to value people's feelings over the actual science. But the, but it's the it's this misperception that there's not a cost to people having their faces covered and being physically quite distant from each other out in the world. We are social animals. Like our, what we are designed for is to look at each other's faces, make human connections, react to each other, talk to each other, interact with each other, touch each other. And 
we haven't, we've been deprived of it. Children have been deprived of the act of learning it. All of us have been deprived of it. It's tragic. I mean, like this is the thing that we do best as human beings is read each other's faces and look at each other. That is literally what our brains are designed to do. The masks are, the masks are, do have a cost and we should acknowledge it and, and face it. And, and the sooner we can be done with them in safe situations, we should be done with them. Can, can I add one quick thing? And the, and the other thing that the danger of getting this wrong does is it muddies and screws up the original reason that masking was a smart idea. It, it allows people to say, you see, we've been saying this for months. But what you're identifying, David, is that the costs of this have now out, out, now outweigh the benefits. That's always been the calculation. Masks were always what you describe, but it was just they were worth doing because of the benefits of wearing them. Those now have shrunk, and so you change your behavior. I just don't want anybody to think um, that, you know, masks were all, I mean, masks were always right. had that cost, yes, but they were worth, sure. it was worth incurring those costs. Right, it's just recognizing that there's a cost-benefit analysis and it can change over time based right. on conditions, right? I mean, I, the, the other thing that I worry about, and this goes back to the point you were making, John, about, you know, it's basically a chicken little problem, right? That if you tell people to do something they don't want to do and they knuckle under for a time and then they start to feel like it's totally unnecessary they're not going to listen to you i mean that is happening all over i was in atlanta i think this it's week. peter i think it's the boy who cried wolf chicken the sky never falls okay you're right just, i got I'm just, my i'm just i'm just 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 digging <laughs> well, into that. I, think, I feel like you could use both of them if you tried but i think you're right that the boy I who think, cried wolf is the better <laughs> the more obvious um what is this it's not a metaphor it's like a Allegory. or fable? Allegory. Thank you. Okay. Parable. Thank you, Jocelyn. Um, the better parable. Okay. The boy who cried wolf. I was in Atlanta this week. People are not wearing masks. I was on a flight home yesterday. People started off with their masks on because, you know, this like the airline attendant came on the loudspeaker and told everyone that was federal law. And then as people got served drinks or like took out food, they took their masks down. And I looked around like halfway through the two and a half hour flight and like half of the people had not put their masks back over their nose and mouth. And I thought like, uh oh. And then I thought, you know, a lot of them are probably vaccinated and people are just making these decisions. And because we've been given these overly restrictive rules and it just feels like this weird time in which there are some people who are going to have very strong tendencies to shame other people into putting their masks back on. And personally, do not think that a flight is the best place to like take it off your nose and mouth. But I feel like this overcaution is already getting ignored by large parts of the population and the amount of social division and like tension over this it's high one little point i'd like to slide in here that i went on a bit of a rabbit hole journey um um on thursday morning about the new york yankees there were seven cases uh of people who tested positive at the yankee in the yankees even though they'd been vaccinated and they're all vaxxed oh i was wondering about yeah. that yeah Yes. So was I. And so like a dumbass, I asked on Twitter what people thought and if they'd seen any explanation for this. And the and the level of sanctimony um, was extremely high in terms of um, the way vaccines work and don't work. Because you don't understand so, the basics, John. You need it explained to you with as much, yeah. um, you know, anger as possible. Right, exactly. Um, which is a real shame, by the way, to what we were talking about on Slate Plus last, last week, which is that the, there, it has become the case in social media, or it has always been the case in social media, you're not allowed to ask a question. Because um, if you ask a question, people just tell you what a dumbass you are for asking the question. But what the question, what struck me was interesting is seven people. And so we know that, that one of the things about the vaccinations, according to the CDC, is that they are both, they prevent you from testing positive, And then if you do test positive, they prevent you from illness. It's both. It's not one of the, it's not just that you don't get the illness. There is some shielding from even picking up and being positive at all. So then the question is, and we also know from studies so far that it's hard to, that, that you can be asymptomatic and not shed. So we, we st I still don't know what the answer is. It seems to be from people who seem to know what they're talking about that it was it's a combination of two things. One, they got the Johnson Johnson vaccine, which is a little bit less um, powerful or, or provides a little bit less coverage than Moderna and Pfizer. Secondly, six of the seven are asymptomatic. What I still don't know is if you are asymptomatic and vaccinated, 
are you not shedding at all? Or or are you like an asymptomatic person who's not been vaccinated, which means you can shed? I didn't quite get that answer by airtime. I think that the, and the reason is nobody quite knows. Probably it's very unlikely that you would transmit, but I don't think we know the answer definitively. Right. And then my very final point is the reason the, the, the Yankees are testing like mad. So if we tested every person in the world who'd been vaccinated in the United States, we might find a lot of cases like this where you're asymptomatic and yet you have it would test positive, but it doesn't really, um, you know, you wouldn't know it unless you were actually tested. So anyway, it's still really an interesting story. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hackers have used a ransomware attack to shut Colonial Pipeline's 5,500-mile pipeline that supplies much of the East with petroleum products they used ransomware supplied by an organization called Darkside. A lot of this is just gibberish to me. But fortunately, this gibberish is about to be explained to us by Alex Stamos, the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory, the former chief security officer of Facebook, internationally recognized expert on cybersecurity, GabFest guest in these dark times. So Alex, welcome back to the GabFest. Can you explain to us what Darkside is? And is this useful to think of this what's happened with the pipeline as an economic attack or in a sort of a attack on the United States, or is it all conflated? Yeah. So first, thanks for having me back. I appreciate uh, being on the GabFest whenever something horrible happens on the internet. Um, <laughs> so uh, Darkside is just the latest of a number of highly professional ransomware crews um, that are operating out of Russia and some other former Soviet republics that have been running rampant across the internet and attacking companies big and small. So one of the less discussed but more impactful cybersecurity stories of the last five years has been the growth of ransomware. The idea of ransomware is a, a bad guy breaks into your network and they install software that one steals your data and brings it to them and then encrypts your data in place. And then they send you a message saying, if you want your data back and if you don't want us to dump it out on the internet, then you need to pay us a ransom. And that ransom for small companies might be in the thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. For the big billion dollar companies, they will ask for 30, 40, $50 million ransoms. This has been hitting people at all kinds of levels. Most famously, local governments, local hospitals. There are at least a couple of cases of deaths that are assumed to have been caused by hospital networks being shut down, school districts. And it is a very, very profitable crime because once you're in the situation that your entire network is locked up, paying $5 million to get back in business if you're a billion-dollar business is, is probably actually the rational choice. And that is what's happened here is Darkside is one of these crews of very, very skilled, highly organized, effectively businesses that are able to operate at, with impunity, with coverage from the Russian government for the most part. Uh, and Darkside is kind of famous of being a big game hunter. So instead of going after the local mom and pops and, and small retail and such, they go after big publicly traded companies and ask for huge ransoms. I thought it was interesting that dark side seemed kind of sheepish that they had actually caused so much disruption, right? <laughs> like they seemed to think like, oh, we didn't quite, we just wanted our money. I think there's a dog that, that caught the car on this one. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Um, one thing that interests me is the fact that, as I understand it, there are federal regulations requiring better cybersecurity protections for electricity grids than there are for pipelines, even though pipelines seem like, to me, the same kind of infrastructure, the same kind of situation where you have a company that has that's private but playing this vital role in the economy. Do you think that this attack will change that and make pipelines um, hopefully subject to the same kind of safety provisions for cyber that we have for the electric grid? And then, sorry to pile on a second question, but are those provisions themselves adequate? Great question. So we, we've already seen some changes. Uh, so you're right. So pipelines, it turns out the cybersecurity pipelines is actually regulated by the TSA, the same people uh, that like to frisk my kids uh, when they when we fly uh, through airports. Um, it went through to some kind of like bizarre Department of Homeland Security decision that was made decades ago. Um, since 
you know, pipeline and other, these other rules were created. We actually have a new agency called CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. They're the ones that regulate in a bunch of other situations. And so I, I do think what we're going to see is we're going to see consolidation of these regulations because it really doesn't make sense for all of these different agencies in the federal government to be running all these different regulatory strategies for different parts of critical infrastructure. Actually, uh, yesterday, as of this recording, Joe Biden actually signed an executive order that's been in the work for months that does a bunch of empowering of CISA. It does not specifically, you know, one of the reasons they had to get this executive order out is it keeps on getting bypassed by reality. So, you know, the, the executive order was started after the solar winds attack and attack against 120 other organizations that we talked about um, that started in December. Uh, and then there was this uh, attack against Microsoft exchange servers that affected 80,000 companies and now the pipeline. And so they finally had to get this thing out before um, history completely bypassed it. So it doesn't mention pipelines. I expect it will have another EO that ends up consolidating pipeline uh, security. Um, as to the standards, that is one thing that this EO starts to do is it really aggressively pushes for stronger regulatory standards um, in a collaboration between CISA and NIST, the National Institutes of Standards Technology, who are the people who set a lot of technical standards. Now, the EO mostly affects federal contractors, um, but I expect that we'll see more rules coming down the pipeline, uh, so to speak, for it, critical industry, um, such as uh, pipelines and power generation and such. The procurement power, though, is is a good piece of leverage, because if I'm the Department of Defense and I'm buying Microsoft products, I have some leverage over them. So, so A, do you, is that right? And then B, my actual question is, if I'm a company and I don't have stuff that I really mind being out in public, I mean, I guess this is, but like, like a hospital, what gets dumped out in the public? I could see how that would be. I mean, I guess it's personal information, which is bad, but it's not... I guess what I'm trying to ask is, are there certain kinds of companies that have data that that is not as valuable and therefore don't have to worry about this or? Right. So, I mean, so the, it's interesting. So at first, ransomware crews would just lock up your data. They wouldn't release it. And then a bunch of people started getting better at backups, right? So effectively, if you back up your entire network and if you have a plan, you could survive one of those ransomware attacks. And so now groups like DarkSide are kind of double- whammies and that not only have we put you out of business but we will make your life hell by releasing all of this data it is true that there's some industries where this is more sensitive so a really famous ransomware incident that's still ongoing is a different ransomware team broke into a taiwanese company that actually makes all uh, foxconn a chinese company chinese and taiwanese sorry company that uh, makes all of apple stuff and has started to release the blueprints of unreleased Apple products, which is the kind of thing that drives a company like Apple insane. Um, wow. So far, nobody, neither Apple nor Foxconn has paid the ransom, but like that's the kind of thing that would, you know, those are the kinds of people who really care. Also, if you have private data and you're dumping private data, then you can end up with a massive civil liability to all of the people whose data you're, that is much larger than the ransom. And I think that's one of the calculations here. It's like, if you hit somebody who has state-level PII requirements, one, they'll have to do a massive disclosure if it gets dumped, um, but then also they will face lawsuits from everybody. And so, yes, that's true. I think also for all companies, nobody wants their email dumped out. So like, just like the Sony pictures, right? Like it was very embarrassing for people to have their personal Amazon purchases and all of the crap they were talking about both internally and externally in the industry. Like nobody wants the entire world reading their email. Um, and, and so I think for effectively any company, there's some level of embarrassment and risk from having your data dumped out. Was, was this an easy thing to do? Is this an easy thing that they're doing? And is it just that uh, sort of, order and decency prevents this from happening to all companies all the time? Well, okay, so it's it was too easy in this case, right? So there's there's information coming out now that Colonial was deficient in a bunch of their security practices. A number of security folks have, there are services that effectively scan the entire internet and they're very useful in these situations because you can go backwards and say, what kind of vulnerabilities did this company have? And it looks like Colonial specifically had some very gaping vulnerabilities that would have been easily exploited. That makes it too easy. The other thing that was too easy here was the shutdown of the pipeline. So like Emily and I were talking about, I think this is the dog that caught the car. Um, 
you know, Darkside kind of in a very interesting move. So they have a they have a whole website that's a dark website, right? It's on it's on a Tor hidden service, so you can get to it with specialized software. But it's hard to f- find out where it physically is located. Everybody knows they're in Russia, but at least you know they have a little bit of of plausible deniability with this dark website. And on it, they had this press release that said, "We are not political. We do not mean to cause any harm. And effectively, we're going to have a better content moderation policy to decide uh, who we're going to hit in the future." Because Darkside's it's a little bit of a, a weird situation that it's not just one crew, but they are a service provider to multiple ransomware crews. It, it's an incredibly complex e- ecosystem, effectively ransomware as a service. And people don't believe that they wanted to shut down the actual pipeline. So to, to step back a little bit, companies that actually make stuff and actually move stuff that have big, complicated networks of systems that do things in the physical world, those networks are called OT, operational technology. All of the other stuff that's just like getting business done, the email, the billing systems, the you know, all the stuff that we use normally is IT information technology. The OT networks is often where people will focus on the security and that's totally important. But what this has demonstrated is that organizations that make stuff or move stuff or do very complicated logistics, if their IT systems are down, they probably can't operate the OT, right? It's like the IT systems that tell people what knobs are you turning? What work are we doing? And so if you can't talk to each other, if you can't communicate, and in this case, it looks like if you can't bill your customers and you can't track what's going through your pipeline, then it doesn't matter if the OT network is secure because you have to end up turning it off. And I think the dark side people didn't understand that and they are in big trouble like this is a big deal because it's like they have now been more effective than any terrorist group has in disrupting like american gas supplies for example so they're very possibly going to see that they're going to get added to the same kind of list to which we add you know they might end up with ofac sanctions via the treasury that you know there is a non-negligible chance that we start renditioning or even killing some of these guys, right? Because it's like, it, there's not a good history of messing with America's oil supply uh, for people. Like, it's just, it's not a, it's not the kind of thing that we take well as a society. And considering the, the political implications here, you could see the entire weight of the federal government coming down on these people. Wow, that's so interesting. I mean, I had been thinking of this as the kind of like medium level threat that in some ways is useful because it makes everybody wake up to this problem and, you know, hopefully tighten regulations, make sure that companies like Colonial don't have these gaping holes that you're talking about. And it seemed, in a sense, you know, obviously shutting down supply for a week to the southeast of the United States is like something, but it seemed less dire than the solar winds breach. I wonder if that hierarchy makes sense to you or whether you think like, actually, that's not a useful way to think about it. I mean, they're different things, right? Like the the solar winds issue seems to have had no physical impact. Like it hasn't had any real impact on people's lives, but it's hard to tell what the long-term intelligence impact is of whatever the SVR was able to gather during that period of time, right? Um, and so it's it's going to be hard to judge versus, you know, shutting down a pipeline you have immediate. It's immediately obvious. Like, um, but the, the, the truth is, is like the ransomware teams are causing more kind of human misery than most of these state actors, right, who are just stealing data. Uh, again, it's hard to tell because you're talking about intelligence operations that we don't really know about. We don't know about if any spies have been captured in Russia and executed. And there's some evidence of this kind of stuff of a number of these Chinese hacks where they stole huge amounts of data and it wasn't clear what the outcome was, but things like American spy networks get wrapped up and such. And so it's quite possible that it will take years for us to understand what the impact of the SVR operation was. Um, Alex, you mentioned that Apple still has an ongoing ransomware issue. How many of these uh, other kinds of ongoing low fever or maybe high fever, slow burning ransomware um, things are there out there? So, I mean, ransomware negotiations probably happen hundreds of times a week. And there are professional companies that you hire effectively, just like because of kidnappings, you ended up with the professionals that you call um, and that the insurance. And so the insurance companies often find and pay these people on behalf of the companies. And they will come in and they'll look at the ransomware and they're like, okay, how are your backups? What, what do your processes look like? Oh, crap. Okay, you guys are in trouble. We got to pay. And then they will go handle the negotiations and be like, hey, it's Bob from you know ransomware company. How are you doing? Right? Like, Because they have these relationships. And so interesting enough, so Brian Krebs is a really good journalist in this area. And in his blog, they just talked about a negotiation between Darkside and a different company in which they, Darkside ended up demanding $30 million. And there's this back and forth negotiation of like down to 12 million, right? So this kind of stuff 
happens all the time. And these guys are like, effectively, you you bring in professional negotiators that kind of make the case to the ransomware people of this is the amount of money that is it is worth it for my clients to spend. And therefore, that is the most you will get. And, you know, for 12 million bucks, uh, most of them will say yes. Wow. Last quick thing on that. Is this all done in crypto? If there was no crypto, would, would this be much harder? Yes. Bitcoin has completely revolutionized cybercrime. So like 15, 20 years ago, it was really hard to make a living as a professional bad guy, right? Like to steal enough money to be a professional hacker was was quite difficult. And you'd have to hit lots and lots of smaller accounts. You'd have to do some business email compromise, get some wires and such. It is very, very hard to get illegal money out of the financial system. So when I was at Facebook, we actually had a scam. It was very low tech that stole $110 million dollars. From Facebook. I can talk about this because there's actually an, a Department of Justice indictment, which is the kicker here, which is the guys that did it. Again, I think they're the dog that caught the car. They were doing the kind of scam that you seal $500,000, a million dollars in wire transfers when companies pay their suppliers. And they didn't realize the supplier they took over, the first payment Facebook made to them was $110 million. And for $110 million, bucks, yeah. like the Southern District of New York will get on the phone. The judges will get on the phone. The FBI will get on the phone. Deutsche Bank will get on the phone. The Bank of Cyprus, who is the actual... Um, uh, shout out to my people, uh, was the actual recipient of the wire. They'll get on the phone because they're worried about their swift access. Um, and these guys are in jail, right? Uh, because it's super hard to get $110 million out of the banking system. Again, stealing $110 million in Bitcoin is like a Thursday, right? Um, and that is the kind of the, the challenge here is that cryptocurrency has made it very easy for these guys to take this money, to launder it. Um, and it would be very difficult for them to to operate like this if it wasn't for that. Alex Damos is the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory. Alex, that was so useful and interesting. Please come back anytime, even when there's good news. If you find some good news in your world, send us a note. Yeah, I'll let you know the first time I hear some good news. (laughs) Let's go to cocktail chatter. John, when you're sitting next to the pipeline that delivers you not petroleum products, but a direct line of whiskey straight from a distillery, what will you be chattering about? Well, my chatter is, um, I like to think, is an innovation in the form. I like to consider this a certain Whoa. personal... Dis- Whoa. Dis- We've been doing the show for 15 plus years, and you have a I new know. form of chatter. I like to think of this as a kind of a personal discovery. Um, so I'm, I'm now going to play something, and then that will be what my chatter is about. Hit it, Jocelyn. So what that was, it didn't, it was not the sound of a hammock twisting in the wind, which is what it sounds like to me, but that was the sound of sperm whales talking to each other. My chatter is about this concerted effort to figure out what in the hell they're saying. Um, And it's the first effort we've, we've, there have been uh, instances that we've taught dogs to understand commands and there's, um, you know, other animals that obviously chimpanzees can use sign language and things like that. But this is the first attempt to try to understand the language of a species as it has these conversations with each other. And what they're basically doing is they're having cocktail chatter is is what these whales, these sperm whales are doing. So that's why this is an innovation in the form. It's not just using the audio of the sperm whales talking, but in fact, what they are doing is having chatter Um so my chatter is about chatter. So it has that. How do you? How do they know already that it's them just chit chatting? Well, that's what the scientists believe at the moment. I don't. I don't. They. I guess they could be. Dis- they could prove be proved wrong. But um, that's the it way. It sounds like they're clicking to each other. Right? Yeah, I thought of Morse code. That's well, right. I mean, that's um, the the way in which the um, the scientists talk about it is is they refer to it as chatter. So it's this kind of these short backs and forth of um, communication with each other. Uh, so I thought, you know, a chatter about chatter. I can't wait to find out what they're saying. I can't wait. I've always thought that the, that the, that the thing that we would know in, um, in a century that we don't know today is that we would actually have be able to somehow be in animals' consciousness Mm. Um, that there'd be some way in which the kind of brain mapping would be sufficient that we could 
experience or almost feel what it was like to be an animal. I can't, I'm so excited to know what they're talking about. Well, and that's why this captured my imagination as well, is that is that this is wholly different from, there's also, by the way, an elephant in Seoul that can speak a few words of Korean, if you're interested in that. But that this, exactly right, David, that this is an under, this is going into their world. And, and it's all been made possible by basically machine learning, you know, the processing power of being able to um, sort languages. So in a few years, we may have an actual sperm whale contributing cocktail chatter to, to, to cocktail chatter. Wasn't, wasn't it you, John, though, in a recent GabFest was citing some other animal scientist who said that if we understood what animals were saying, it would just be mate with me, mate with me, mate with me, mate with me. <laughs> Well, frankly, if we understood humans uh, and what they're really thinking, that that would largely be a lot of what people are thinking, too. I love that the things we're in some ways the most captivated by are these incredibly ordinary and yet hidden phenomena of our own world, right? Like you don't have to go to Mars or even like deep under the sea to be like, wait, what's my dog really thinking as he's sniffing? With whales, you do need to go deep under the sea, I guess. True, or at least into the sea in some capacity, uh, <laughs> presumably. Emily, what is your chatter? I am chattering about two books. The first one is a high-stakes legal thriller packed with intense courtroom drama. That is according to the blurb on the front. It is by my sister, Lara Bazelon. It is her first novel and legal thriller. It's called A Good Mother. It's on sale this week. Um, it's a page-turner. Yay, congratulations to Lara, and people should pick it up if you like a good legal thriller, and who doesn't? And the second book I wanted to recommend is a nonfiction book called America on Fire. The subtitle is The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. It's by Elizabeth Hinton, who is a Yale professor and a friend of mine, Disclosure, and it's this really interesting regional history of lots of different, what Elizabeth calls rebellions, the idea that, you know, Black-led protests in American cities, which may or may not have included both nonviolent and sometimes, you know, property destruction kinds of acts, that those were a sort of concerted form of rebellion. There was political organizing going on. There were different tactics being used. And Elizabeth tells these stories that I certainly was totally unaware of in kind of medium-sized cities around the country about how this actually developed. And it's just especially interesting to think about right now in light of our past year of protests and the different tactics that people use to consider how this all played out in the 60s in ways that were quite surprising to me. So that book is called America on Fire, and it's also on sale. You know, it's it's a big week for, this is not what my chatter was going to be, but it is a big week for siblings who have books out, because my brother, John Plotz, also has a book no out. No way. Week. That's so yeah. funny wow. and great. It's called B-Sides. It's a collection of, he got a bunch of really good writers to write about sort of books that they loved, that, but that nobody had ever heard of or that, that were some, much less known than they should be. So Ursula Le Guin, for example, um, writing about it. And it's great. So check out B-Sides. So wait, Ursula Le Guin is a brother, contributor to the book. It's not an a Ursula contributor. Le Guin. Okay. It's awesome. not Ursula Le Guin. Ursula Le Guin talking about say, a book that she, uh, I mean, she wrote this before she died, but about a book that she loved as a, as a, as a younger person. Oh, I love that idea. That's great. My chatter actually was about uh, an experience I had. Really goes back to our masking conversation. I went to a soccer game of my son's last weekend. The first game that he'd had since pandemic, or the first game he'd had that I've been able to go to. And it was so fantastic to be able to hang out with the other parents. They, you know, these Suddenly other Suddenly all that boring, essentially, cocktail chatter is so welcome. And you're like, yeah. oh, my God, I love you so yeah. much. <laughs> Where yeah. have you been these all my year? Yeah, exactly. And these are not <laughs> close friends. These are people who are not close friends. I mean, some of them aren't really friends at all. And They're people all the better for it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I have a friendly relationship with them. It's wonderful to hear what they're up to. It's great to natter, to gossip, to chit-chat. And talk to talk to people who are not the same people I've always been talking to for the last 15 months. It was joyful. It was magnificent. It was like the most fun hour I spent in the week, practically. I'm so uh, with you about all these like informal contacts that we've been missing. And it's like the people who you might not have ever seen. But like there are lots of people like that in your life, lots of those interactions. And they're fulfilling in their own way. And we have been deprived of them. Can I suggest for a future topic of conversation that we figure out... 
I feel like there's a window in these kinds of conversations. First of all, you need small talk. You need the kind of shallow end paddling around in basically the banalities of life to just give everybody a break and just have that kind of human connection that David's talking about without having to raise the damn stakes so high. Having said all of that, it does seem to me that we're in a position in a period where people have thought deeply about their lives over the last, however, 18 months or whatever it is. And they've probably come to some really interesting conclusions. And I would, it would be great if there could be a norm or a way to ask Questions that might seem a little bit like too deep for the sideline. What is your what is your revelation? Yeah, exactly. Right. What is your revelation? Because everybody has them, and we're in this window where the the joy of rushing back into conversation should allow us the slightly odd question of like, what's been your deep personal revelation that you've had over the period of time? And if we don't seize it now, we'll just regular life will paper over, you know, these interesting moments. So anyway, we need to find a convention that allows this question to be asked without the person on the sideline moving away from you and going over by the orange slices, because that's what always happens to me. Good idea, John. I love it. What is your revelation right after, wow, it's such a sunny day? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, Why did the principal quit? I don't know. No one knows. <laughs> Listener chatter, you all continue to tweet great chatters to us at, at @slategapfest. Please keep them coming. Also, please keep coming if you have ideas for us to talk things to talk about on Slate Plus, by the way, tweet those to us also. We like um, those suggestions. Yeah. So, but please send chatters. There's so many good ones and also great letters this week from you dear listeners. There were a number of really wonderful, thoughtful, wise letters, some rebuking us, some elaborating on things that we said, and appreciate that. So you can email those to us at gabfest at slate.com. Our listener chatter comes from Adam Shear. Adam, take it away. Hi, Gabfest. I'm Adam Shear from Brooklyn. My listener chatter is about the uncensored library. It's a library filled with books and articles that are censored in their country of origin, but the library is built entirely in the digital Lego video game Minecraft. It uses the game to get around cyber censorship because even in countries where websites and blogs and the free press are strictly limited, Minecraft remains accessible to everyone. I love this Borgesian story that feels like it sits at the intersection of an easily dismissed format for many with real potential for positive change in the world. And that story Adam is talking about is by Walker Kaplan for LitHub. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @slategapfest. Please tweet, chatter to us, and send us also ideas for Slate Plus topics. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? John spotted a tweet from Jennifer Johnson at, at @cjenwright that caught his fancy, and we decided to talk about it today. Tell me a decision, writes Jennifer Johnson. Tell me a decision that changed the trajectory of your life, but you can't say choosing your faith, getting married, or having a kid. So, who wants to go first? John, you go first. Okay, I'll go first. Mine, um, well, first of all, this isn't the only one, but it seems like an enormous one. (laughs) Not seems like, it is an enormous one. When I first, in my senior year, in fourth year in college, I, um, like everybody at the time, put my resume in the boxes of the investment banks that came to the schools, and they made it so easy. They, you know, they had set up the little tables, you put in your resume, and then they got, they called you back, and they flew you to New York, they interviewed you in New York, and then, you know, you maybe got a job or didn't get a job. So I was only called to New York by one firm, Smith Barney. There were other ones I'd talked to, but they wouldn't fly me to New York, which was a which was a kind of, you know, getting past a certain hurdle. I interviewed with them, and basically the guy, the guys who interviewed me said, you don't want this job, and we don't want to give you this job because you should be off doing something like working on Capitol Hill or working in the Senate or doing something that has to do with government, which is weird because I was an English major. I had dropped my government major midway through. But anyway, they were basically, they basically said, 
we could give you a job in investment banking because part of the thing about investment banking is they were hiring people who didn't have any skills in math or money or any of that, which would include me. And they basically said, you're not, this is not what you should be doing. But it was incredibly attractive. It was a huge paycheck by the standards of the time. I mean, obviously it still is. And it meant I could move to New York, which I really wanted to do. And it was a crushing blow. And I was also irritated at them for like thinking they knew better what I needed than I did. I thought it was, inc- I was so furious. And I was like, I'm graduating college and I don't have a job and I don't have a, so basically I got the only job I could, which was as a secretary at Time Inc. Um, and <laughs> at a significantly reduced or like barely a salary and never looked back basically went into journalism so that that determined my career path so is that a lesson in like those people actually knew better in some weird way or just that like serendipity plays a huge role in people's lives or both? i think they that was just a snippet from our slate plus conversation if you want to hear the whole conversation go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to become a member today Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.